You can start turning back to Matthew chapter 12. And I will pray for us. God, those words that we just sang, I pray that those would be the words that you put on our heart. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. It's for you. It's all for you. And I love the idea of that word, seal it. Like, like wrap it up, have it permanently fixed, done, complete. I love that idea that, that once you have us, you're keeping us. You're not letting us go. You're not sending us back. You're not, you're not, you're not hitting the reset button. You, you've got us and you're going to keep us. And you're going to continue to love us. Despite who we are and despite the sin and the, and the things that still may be present in our lives, you, you still love us and you still continue to work on us and you continue to make us look more and more like you. So God, I pray that by the time we get done today that we would be resting in your faithfulness and your, your mercy toward us as you continue to remain faithful to us. The people that you have called out and that you have brought together. God, I just pray that, that we would be so amazed by how good you are and so passionate about the message that you have left for us to continue to deliver. Um, God, I just pray that you would, you would work in our hearts to, again, just continue to refine our view of who you are and refine our view of what it is that salvation means. And, and refine our view of what role we actually play in that. In Jesus' name, amen. So Caleb used the verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 a couple of weeks ago, and I keep, I'm just super grateful that he brought that verse in. I'm going to read it again, because I keep, I keep coming back to it uh, during all my sermon prep. I'm going to read, uh, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. The verses are going to be on the screen. If you want an actual Bible to actually look at while you're flipping through, we have some that we've bought for you, and we keep them back in the back. So if you need one, like, you can sneakily go back there and grab one, or you can just kind of turn around and look confused, and somebody, I'm sure, will bring you one. Um, so uh, let's just go ahead and read this, these ver this verse here in 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. Um, and he's talking about in these verses, Paul's kind of referring to, this is what the, he's trying to explain the difference between what it looks like to be saved and what it looks like to be unsaved. And he said, the natural person, that's the person who does not follow God, does not accept the things of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So those verses just continue to emphasize, I mean, in a sense, the kind of the remarkable change that takes place in us when Christ opens our eyes to see him for who he truly is. When he gives us a new heart that desires to love and serve him. When we, when we have that that experience, when he, when he takes us from being 
dead in our sins and being made alive in Christ, when, when that happens, so much more takes place than we realize. It's not just that all of a sudden I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. It's not, it's not just that. He gives us a new way of perceiving the world around us. He gives us a new understanding of why the things that are taking place around us take place. What the purpose of, of the good and the evil that takes place in the world. Like, like who is behind that and why those things are working the way they do. He gives us a new way of perceiving things that take place around us. I, I just... Okay, like, I'm not going to get political. But I was, we watched the debate last week. And right at the beginning, they hit this... Uh, the, the idea of abortion really, really hard right off the bat. And it was so inter interesting in bad ways, like I'm just sitting here analyzing when we're talking about murdering people. But here's the thing. You have, you have two ways of perceiving that. You have a really difficult decision that has to be made sometimes in the best interests of a woman. Or you have, this is life and it is precious and valuable to God and it should be protected at all costs because this is humanity. This is an image bearer of God that we are talking about murdering. You have two different ways of looking at that. But depending on whether or not you, under, you have the mind of Christ, right? That verse that we just read. We have the mind of Christ. If you don't see things the way Jesus sees things it makes sense that you would be confused by this idea of protecting precious life that bears the image of God. Because that makes no sense to you. The things of God are just a completely different language to you. So, so that's why when we see these debates or when we see these kinds of conversations that go on, at ETSU, because on campus you have a lot, like, you're trying to encourage different viewpoints to have discussions. And it's like, how do we both see the exact same thing taking place, and yet we land on two completely different sides of what's happening here? How does that happen? How can we both see the exact same evidence sometimes? Like, I see this evidence, and I see, oh, this evidence clearly points to God. And you say, no, I see this evidence, and this evidence clearly points to the fact that no God made any of this. How do we do that? It's because some of us see things the way God has given us the vision to see them. And some of us are still lost and, and we're left with this mind that's unable to perceive the things of God. Like, that's how you arrive at the same thing from two different viewpoints. And that continues to be what's happening as Jesus is having these interactions with the Pharisees and the other people who've been following him. Everybody is seeing Jesus performing miracles. The Pharisees are not denying that Jesus is performing miracles. They accept the fact that Jesus is healing people, that he's last week, or yeah, that was last week, wasn't it? How many times have I slept since then? Uh, he's, he's healing people on Sabbath, and he's, he's doing all these things, and they're, and they're seeing the same thing, but they're focusing on completely different things. Jesus is focusing on love and mercy and showing people you know, who his heart is, the heart of God. And the Pharisees are looking at it and they're saying, he's breaking these rules and he's doing all these things. Look, he's evil and we shouldn't follow him. Two completely different places, two completely different viewpoints. 
that are watching the same thing taking place. We're going to continue to see that through the rest of Matthew, but we're going to see a really clear example of it today. Uh, And unlike last time when Jesus was kind of put in that situation and then he got away, uh, today he's going to kind of not fight back, but he's going to kind of speak some hard truth into that. That's going to be really helpful for us as the church in a lot of different ways. So let's go ahead and jump in here uh, into Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to start with verses 22 through 24. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And the people saw this, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's, by, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So this is not the first time that we've seen Jesus heal blindness. And, and I said it last time when we talked about it, but Jesus is the only one in the gospel who actually heals somebody of blindness, specifically. He is the only one that we see actually giving sight which is important because part of the prophecy about the coming Messiah was that the blind will see. So this is, this is a direct answer to an Old Testament prophecy pointing towards him being the Messiah, him being the, the, the Savior, the one that they had been waiting for all this time. And so again, Jesus is healing somebody of their blindness. And at this point, it's, it's saying he was blind and mute because he was oppressed by a demon. And, and it's really easy to just kind of, especially now, kind of dismiss, oh, well, the reason this person suffers from this, that's demonic, and that's because they have a... De-. It's like when we start saying that, you start thinking, that doesn't sound... That sounds weird. Like, that's just not a thing that we... That's not the way we describe things. But I think it's worth reminding ourselves that, that at that point and continuing forward, we are in a greater battle than just, how am I going to survive today? Or how am I going to talk to this person about the gospel. We are, there's, a bigger, there's a bigger war going on. Not one that I am worried that God is going to lose, but there is continual battle against Satan and his forces as this, as this period of history since Christ has come back has been playing out. And so, and so what we're seeing here is Jesus healing this person and, and we get two different reactions. Two, two different groups of people seeing the exact same thing take place. They all see this man is oppressed by a demon. He cannot talk. He cannot see. Jesus interacts with this demon, casts this demon out. Dude can see. He can talk. This should be a happy time, right? And the people are, says they're amazed by it. They see it and they immediately say, could this guy really be the son of David? Now, that question has, has lots of different layers to it. Um, because part of the prophecy about the Messiah was that he would fulfill the royal line of David. He would be the king that would come and rule and reign over them forever. In the prophecy, he says, your throne's going to last forever. And so they're sitting there thinking, could this be him? But, but they're asking this because he's just performed a miracle. He just, he just cast out a demon. They're saying, could the son of David, could the king also be a prophet? Could the, could the son of David, the king, also be like serving as a priest? Could he also be a miracle worker? Because this is not a way that they had thought about their Messiah 
up to this point. And we keep seeing this. The people keep being confused by the fact that Jesus isn't coming just as a king to rule right then, to overthrow Rome and set up his physical kingdom on earth right then. And so they're confused. They're like, is there more to this Messiah than just that he is the son of David and he's going to continue to rule and reign over us now? So they're trying, to, they're trying to process who is this Messiah and what is his actual purpose for being here. Is he, cause, and they're asking this question, I think, in a very legitimate way. So it really looks like you're the Messiah, but these are not the things that we had expected that you would be doing once you got here. This is still not the way that we anticipated uh, this going. Um, and so they're more asking, I think, for clarification. But they're, they're asking for clarification. Kind of, they're looking in the right direction. And I think that's what's, that's what's really cool to see, is that they're saying, we're seeing these amazing things, and this makes us think that you're probably God. This makes us think that you're probably the Messiah that we've been waiting on all along. This makes us think that, that, that you're doing something good here, and it's worth our continual following you, our continual trying to better understand who you are and what it is that you're trying to do. That is one way to react to that. The Pharisees reacted a completely different way. They said, oh yeah, he did that. It's because Satan did it. It's because he's working for Satan, guys. Guys, he's working for Satan. This is a bad guy. Don't, don't like those things that he's doing. He's, he's, working for, he's working for the enemy, and you shouldn't follow him. And I think it's so amazing how, how completely opposite. They're like, look at what this guy did. He must be God. And they're saying, no, look at what this guy did. He must be Satan. Like two completely different places to arrive after seeing the same thing. No, they didn't, they didn't deny that it actually happened, which I think is amazing. Nowadays, I think if we tend to be more opposed to something that we see happening, we either try to deny it or discredit it or something like that. They're not discrediting what Jesus is doing. They cannot deny the power that he is demonstrating. And that's, that's, that's important, and that's, that's impressive that the things he's doing cannot be denied. They cannot be, you know, he's not like trying to logically deconstruct who Jesus is. They're just saying, oh yeah, he's, he's, he's doing impressive stuff, but he's doing it all in a bad way, and it's evil because we don't like it. And I think it's important for us to recognize that our perception of the work of God reflects the current state of our hearts. I want us to get that. The way we perceive what God is doing around us is revealing to where we are in relation to God. If you see the things that are going on in the world and you say, look at all this evil, God must not be a very nice guy. I don't like him. I don't like the things that he's doing. Then he probably does not have your heart. Because because once you have the heart of God, Right? Once we have the mind of Christ, like we read in 1 Corinthians, once we have that new understanding of things, you see the things that are taking place in this world, but you're able to understand, oh, I see how God has been moving from point A to point B throughout history, and I see how each of these steps along the way he's using to make much of himself, or he's working toward a particular endgame. And though I may not understand it right now, I trust that he is doing something good through this. So it's a good moment for us to kind of pause and think about the way that we perceive the things that happen around us. And do we reflect on those things as, man, look at how powerful and good God is. Do we reflect on those things and say, oh man, I don't like what's going on here. 
I need to put a stop to this. Because that's going to reveal what our current heart state is. That's going to reveal if God has our hearts. Let's go ahead and keep reading in Matthew chapter 12. I'll pick up in verse 25. So we're going to get Jesus' response now. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But, but if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then, our, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. We'll pause there. I think it's interesting that Jesus doesn't deny that Satan has some form of power. Right? He does, again, he, he says, yeah, there really is this, this enemy. There really is this battle that is being fought here. But, and the point he tries to make, and, and, and I love the way he argues this, but... If I was on Satan's side, and this demon's on Satan's side, what sense would it make for me fighting against that one? What sense does it make for Satan to be divided against himself? If that's the case, then you ought to just be excited about it because Satan's ultimately just going to crumble to the ground because he's, he's got all of this kind of infighting. He's saying, why are you trying to stop the casting out of a demon? And why are you assuming that I would be Satan? Because if I'm working for Satan, then I'm actually working against myself. What sense does that make? And so he's starting to unpack what the Pharisees are saying and he's trying to make the point, look, if you say that I'm working for him, then it completely undoes your perception of it altogether anyways. But if I am, if I am casting out this demon by the power of God, then this, and this is the big point, then he says, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God has truly Arrived, And what he's trying to say here is that if I really am the Messiah and I really am the one that you've been waiting on, which he is, which he was, and which he's trying to communicate to them, then you should be excited because you're seeing the power of Satan be limited. Because yes, Satan has power. Because yes, he had been given some level of authority to do things on the earth. All of that limited by God, and we could go back to all sorts of different examples uh, in Scripture where God says, I'm letting him do the things that I let him do. But in verse 28 and 29, when he uses this example, I'm going to read it again because I think it's good. But if, but if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here it is. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. What Jesus is trying to say is, by virtue of my being here, by the kingdom of God being at hand, that message that he keeps bringing, guys, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of God is present with you. He's saying, I am here, and now that I'm here, you're starting to see the effects, and Satan's power is being limited. And what he's saying is, in that example, basically, I'm slowly going to tie up Satan here. Like, I'm not going to just come in and take out the whole, take the, bring the whole world to myself. He says, you first go in, you tie up the strong guy that lives there. So he's tying up Satan is basically what he's saying. 
He's saying, I am slowly limiting what he is capable of doing before I come back and I take the whole house and I say, you guys are with me, let's go. So he's kind of asserting his authority, his his dominance over Satan's power and he's saying, he can't do anything to me. I am ultimately more powerful than he is. And look, you're already seeing the effects of my being here. He's already being limited in what he can do. He's already being held back from the things that he once had authority over. And that's evidence, again, that I am the Messiah and that I am here. These are the things that he's trying to communicate to them. And I think we got to be amazed at this idea that, that Jesus is saying, you're seeing the effects of the battle being won here. This is 2,000 years ago, and already Jesus is starting to defeat his enemy. Jesus is already starting to say, look, this is the winning side. I'm already there. I'm, like, like, I'm already showing you my power. And he's saying it's only a matter of time. And I think it's, it's, it's worth noting, like, people didn't understand when he says, you got to tie up the strong man before you come back and plunder the house. Like, he's implying there's still some stuff left to happen before I come back and take the house altogether. Before I come back and everything is made right. He's, it's almost like he's starting to imply this idea of there is still some time to be had here on earth. I'm not here to fix everything permanently right now. Right now... I'm here to start binding Satan. I'm here to start limiting him. But ultimately, down the road, years later, there's going to come a time where I ultimately defeat him. Let's go ahead and keep reading in verse 30 through 32. And this is where he starts to kind of push back against the Pharisees. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So again, I cannot cannot stress this enough. There is no middle ground with Jesus. There's no kind of in, kind of out. There's no stepping a little toe in, and, but for the most part, I'm just going to kind of hang on the outside. You are either all in or you are an enemy of God. That is what he is saying. You are either completely surrendered to him or you are actively fighting against him. Think about that. Actively an enemy of God. And we just saw what kind of authority and power he has when he is faced with an enemy. He has all authority, all power. If you are not all in with Jesus, you are actively fighting against him. And this is why Jesus follows up with the warning that he does. Uh, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a terrifying thought to read that, that promise that way. Uh, All of these sins can be forgiven, but if you do this one thing, there's no hope for you. If you do this one thing, there's no chance. There's no salvation from this one one sin. 
And if you read it that way, if you just read, oh, so if I commit this one sin, if I say something bad about the Holy Spirit, then I cannot get saved. That's obviously what he says, right? That, that's, that's the point of the verse. So i got to make sure that I don't say something that I'm not supposed to say so that I don't completely disqualify myself from salvation. But we believe that salvation is completely a work of God. We believe that there's nothing that we do to earn God's favor. There's nothing that we can do that can, that can earn our way into heaven. And if there's nothing that we can do, if there's no action, if there's no, no incantation, no, no certain set of words, no little specific prayer, if there's no one thing that we can do to get ourselves into heaven, then it makes sense that there's also no one thing that we as individuals can do that are going to disqualify us from heaven. Because to say, oh, if I say this word, then God can't save me anymore, is to imply that I have more authority over my salvation than God does. And that can't be the case. And if that can't be the case, if we can't, if we as individuals, cannot permanently disqualify ourselves from salvation. Then what's he talking about? What is he trying to say? Jesus has kind of been continually calling all of these crowds around him to repentance, right? He's been continually saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, repent. And he's gone through all of these towns and these areas and he's been, he's been performing all of these miracles and he's been saying, you see that the kingdom of heaven is here. Repent of your sins. Come, follow me. Give me your heart. I want your heart. I want you. I want you to be here with me. But as we've seen, there have been people who have continually been rejecting this. People have continually been walking away from repentance. Right? We saw him kind of, we kind of saw him speak out against some of those cities who had seen all of these things. He'd been walking around with them for his whole life, and yet they still didn't believe. And he's saying, there's no hope for these people. All that's left for them is destruction. All that's left for them is the wrath of God. So I think what Jesus is actually saying is more of an answer to that. That, that being presented with, with the truth of who Jesus is and to double down on your rejection of that, to, to, to kind of settle in, I'm good. I don't need that. I don't want that. I don't need Jesus. I can get by, by by the way I live my life, or I can get by through whatever other means I think I can get by. Or I just don't buy the fact that there's this wrath that comes at the end. To double down on that, to have your heart hardened to that point, I think that's what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying, oh, if you say these words against the Holy Spirit, you're out. He's saying, he's saying to continually push the Holy Spirit away leads to destruction. There's no coming back from that. Because he even says in those verses leading up to it, Every sin, every blasphemy will be forgiven. All these little individual things, individual things you say, individual things you do, you say, all that we can take care of. We can forgive those things. We can, we can grow past those things. But to ultimately reject 
the message of who God is. To, to not repent when the kingdom of heaven is being presented to you. To walk away from that. There's no coming back from that. There's no, there's no returning. There's no salvation. And he, and he says, and I think it's worth reading it again, either in this age or in the age to come. And we've got to read this because, because it's so easy to say, well, God's so loving, God's so nice, surely even if I miss the boat here, we can come up with some sort of like, like holding cell. That maybe God puts us in there and ultimately He saves us out of that and I can still have another chance to get into heaven. He's saying, no, no, no. No, this is it. Repent now. Because, because when you get to that next part, there's still no hope for you there either. That's why it's so important that we get this right. That's why it's so important that we accurately tell the gospel for what it is. That's why we, it's so important that we obey what Christ says and we continue to take the gospel with us wherever we go. Living a life that rejects the call of the gospel is what's unforgivable. Not saying some certain set of words. Not in a fit of rage, crying out against God. That's not what he's talking about. And Jesus goes on to kind of reinforce this idea. Last set of verses. We're going to read 33 through 37. Because he wants us to understand where we are in this. He wants you to know, like, like I keep saying, he keeps making it very clear, there's, you're either in or you're out. You're either completely committed or you're fighting against him. And he wants you to know where you are. Like, like this is, I want you to read this very individually. Don't just let me read it and you think, okay, he's reading these words over me, these are good truth. No, I want you to put yourself in here and try to, try to, try to figure out who he's talking about, if he's talking about you in any of these verses. Verse 33. Either, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Again, we got to look at that in the right context, because he's not saying if you say the wrong things, you're going to get you're going to get the wrath of God, and if you say the right things, you're going to be saved. He's not saying it's based on what you say, because he prefaced it with the things that you say are rooted in where your heart is. He starts with where is your heart. Because, because if your heart is good, if your heart's beating and, and, and seeking after God, then the things that you say will be good. If the things that are coming out of your mouth are evil, if the things that you're saying, the things that you're doing, if they're all rooted in evil, it's probably because your heart is rooted in evil. So it's not because of those individual things that you say or do that save you or that disqualify you. Either way, it's whether or not you have a heart that loves and seeks after God. And he really, really, really wants you to know where your heart is. 
He really wants you to kind of kind of inspect your life, inspect what's coming out of your life, inspect the things that you're doing, the things that you're saying, not when you're here, not just when you're here, when you're at work, when you're in class, or wherever it is that you may be, when you leave this place and you're a bit more, I don't know, comfortable to live just like you are, be whoever it is that you are, what are the things that you say then? What are the things that you do then? Because those actions, those words, are a reflection of what your heart state is. And Jesus wants you to realize that if what's coming out is evil, then at your core, it's probably still evil. And for those of you, those are the ones that he's saying, repent. Like, like see these things and understand that, that it's not that, that, that Jesus is working against you. It's not that he's bad. He wants you to respond. He wants you to, to come to him and say, I surrender. You can have my heart. Because that's when, that's, when, that's when he's going to start the real change. So what do all these things mean for us? First, means there's nothing that you can do in this life that can keep God from saving you if he wants to. That is so important. There, there is nothing, I'm going to say it again. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read it again. There is nothing that you can do in this life that can keep God from saving you if he wants to save you. So if God wants to save you, he will save you because he loves you and he wants you. And if you're hearing that verse, if you're hearing that blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven, if you're hearing that and you're terrified, if you're worried about what that means, what if I've done that? What if I've said that thing? What if I... The fact that you're worried that you've committed an unforgivable sin is evidence probably that you haven't. But even more, it's probably even evidence that you're saved. Hmm? He woke you up this morning. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 2. What we said. Like, like he gives us a better understanding. It makes no sense to us if we're apart from Christ. Once we're in Christ, once we are saved, he gives us the mind of Christ. So if you are terrified that you have offended God and done something unforgivable, it's because you understand what's at stake here. Meaning you have the mind of Christ and it's probably that he's already saved you. The fact that you're worried that you have committed this sin is likely evidence that you have not and that he has saved you. Last thing. Don't become paralyzed and depressed when you hear the possibility that some won't be saved. When you hear about all the evil, don't let that stop you. Don't let that scare you. Instead, become more determined to continue to take the gospel with you wherever you go. Because it's really easy for us to preach some of these messages that talk about the idea of there are things that won't be forgiven because people are going to die and they're going to be apart from Christ and they're going to be, be, be subject to the wrath of God forever. And it's like, man, that's heavy. I don't like that. But instead of just kind of getting resolved to say, I don't like that version of God or I don't like to hear that, what if instead we said, so I guess I should do everything I can to make sure nobody goes through that. 
I guess instead I should make it my life's goal to continue to take this gospel, this truth of who Jesus is, and and hope that he will use me to save some people from that. Instead of thinking, oh man, that's so sad, I don't like that. Think, what can I do about this? This was months and months back uh, at work. We interviewed a student who's a med student who uh, was driving home from hiking, and he saw that a head-on collision had happened on the side of the road, and both the cars were, like, engulfed in flames. And in that moment, he got out of his car, and over the course of the next minute or two, when you hear him tell the story, it sounds like it took an hour, he ended up getting some scissors, cutting a seat belt, breaking out a window, and pulling a guy out of a burning car as quickly as he could. Because he knew, if I hesitate, if I wait, this guy's going to burn to death. We, who have the mind of Christ, we can see the fire. <laughs> right? We can see what's happening. We can see where all of this is heading. We need to also share that same sense of urgency. We also need to be, be resolved to say, i got to do something about this. When we see that there are people who are just lost, without, without any hope. We know what hope is. We've met hope. We get to talk to hope every day. We have to continue to so, so believe that, that that is true and let it resonate so heavily through our lives. We've got we to gotta be the ones that are bringing the hope, that are sharing the joy that we have. We shouldn't just be bogged down and sad because we see evil. We should instead be impassioned because we know, we know how to respond to that evil. Because we've been shown what God does with, through evil. We've been shown what God will do in our lives. And as a result, we should go and love people. And we should make sure that they know that there is hope, that there is salvation, and that it's in Jesus. Let's pray.